If you have a Bible, I'd like for you to join me in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Luke, chapter 1. A few months ago, I was praying and thinking on uh, where we would go as a congregation. And, and uh, as I've shared with you before, my conviction is that expository preaching is the proper way to study the Bible, meaning that we start and study all the way through a book. And I made a conclusion that we would uh, study through one of the Gospels because I really believe what we need more than anything else is more of Jesus. And so we're going to study Jesus from Luke's account. And so we're going to call this series an orderly account, the Gospel of Luke. I've never been real creative when it comes to sermon series titles. I just lift off the page what it's already said. And in, in uh, excuse me, Luke says of his Gospel, I just want to provide for you an orderly account of Jesus. And so that's what he does, and that's what we're going to that's what we're going to study together. Luke is by far the longest of the four Gospels. He also wrote the book of Acts. So when you take Luke and add Acts. Luke is responsible for writing about 25% of the whole New Testament. And so let me tell you a little bit about him. Uh, Luke's background is, as you know, from Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. He's a physician. He's not a pastor. He's not one of the apostles. So anytime somebody asks you to name the 12 apostles and you start out Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're already missed two. So Mark and Luke were not apostles. You can keep Matthew and John, by the way. Just uh, don't do Mark and Luke. Uh, so he's not a pastor, he's not an apostle, but he is a doctor, and he travels a lot. He loves to travel, and particularly he loved to travel with the Apostle Paul. Now, I love the Apostle Paul, and his praise of Luke is high praise. He calls Paul, I'm sorry, Paul calls Luke, I'll get my names together in a minute. Uh, Paul calls Luke his fellow worker. Now, for Luke, I did it again, for Paul to call Luke a fellow worker is sort of like, Tom Brady calling somebody else a good quarterback. I mean, that's high praise. Paul is an amazing worker, diligent, faithful, and clear when it comes to the gospel. So when he says, this guy, Luke, man, I count him with me. He's my fellow worker. Later on in the ministry of Paul, when his persecution is its most intense, Paul says, everyone has deserted me except for Luke. Paul loves Luke. So why does Luke sit down and write the gospel? Now Luke, Luke helps us, by the way, if you're a writer, read what Luke says. If you're in school, if you're in high school or middle school or college, uh, Luke does a great job here. He says who he is, who he's writing to, what he's writing, and most importantly, why he's writing. So by way of introduction, let's, lead, let's read the introduction of Luke's gospel. He says in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus." that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Let me give you four quick things that Luke says here in these verses. These aren't our major points for this morning, but they're important. First of all, Luke says he studied all the material written about Jesus up to that point. Now, here's what will often happen, probably happened this last year. I can't give you time and place, but 
the gospel of somebody was studied in probably ABC, got 2020, and they brought a bunch of people out and said, oh, here's the gospel of Thomas or the gospel of Judas or who knows what's going to come next. Luke says many people have written about this stuff, and I've read it all. And what Luke's saying is, since I've been here and I can investigate these things, let me write down for you an orderly account. Now, this includes good things and things that were perhaps not accurate. For example, almost the entire Gospel of Mark is included in the Gospel of of Luke verbatim. So obviously Luke said he's a good source. You would hope that being a doctor, Luke would be careful and comprehensive. And he is. So first, he studied all the material. Secondly, Luke spoke to the eyewitnesses himself. And I love this about Luke. He would make a great investigative reporter. Now, oftentimes, this is not how things are done now. How things are done now is I think so-and-so said something, so-and-so said, I think I got an email, and I can't quite remember what it said, but here's it, and then they give you some sort of bold, audacious claim that's based on really fuzzy witnesses. In fact, they can't even really tell you where they... That's not Luke. Look what he says. Verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. Luke just doesn't take somebody's word for it. He goes to the source himself. Now, when I was in college, I was a history major. And one of the first things you learn as a history major, there's two types of sources, primary sources and secondary sources. Primary sources for historical information are the best sources because they are written by people who were there. So if you're going to write a book about the Revolutionary War, you want to study the writings of the men who were there. Sure, you want to read books that came 50 years later or 100 years later and so on and so forth, but you want to hear from the horse's mouth, so to speak, and that's what Luke does. So for example, Luke may have gone up to, uh, to some of the disciples and said, you know, tell me about that time that Jesus talked to uh, you know, Zacchaeus over in Capernaum. And the disciples would have said, We didn't talk to him in Capernaum. That was Jericho. And Luke would say, I was just testing you. I just want to see. I just wanted to see if you were really, if this is consistent. He talks to it, talks to the eyewitnesses himself. Now, this is important because what it suggests is the Christian faith is built on facts, not the other way around. Because most of the critics of Christianity will say that these folks just made this whole thing up. Luke's saying, we didn't make it up. We investigated it to the nth degree. The the faith didn't lead us to to, uh, manipulate the facts. The facts educated our faith. Third, Luke listened, studied, and interviewed for a long period of time. Now, what he says in verse 3, seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past. In other words, he wasn't new to this stuff. He'd been at it for years. And fourth, he does have a particular purpose for writing the book that is uh, important for us to note. He's writing it to, uh, he says, have followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly, ordered, orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, just briefly, we got to say, who is this Theophilus? Well, Luke uses the, the description most excellent, and then when you get around to the book of Acts, He only uses the phrase most excellent when he refers to somebody who's high up in the Roman government. So Theophilus, I think, is a real person, 
and he's someone who's interested in all the stuff that has been going on in the Roman Empire about this man, Jesus. And so Luke says, I'm, I'm investigating it, writing it all down to give to you so that this is a really heavy word. Are you ready for the re- really heavy word? It's a word that our culture doesn't like, but it's what Luke says. He says, so that you may have certainty about the things that you have been taught. Now, real quick, certainty's uh, kind of an ugly word today. For, for example... Let me give you something that I read over and over and over as I read and study. When it comes to theology, when it comes to the study of God, there's a parable that's out there that I see over and over. And here's how the parable goes. You ready for the parable? Here's the parable. There are three blind men, and they're in a room with an elephant. So already it's kind of a crazy parable. One of the blind men stands in front of the elephant and hold on, is holding on to the trunk. And as he holds on to the trunk, he begins to describe the elephant and says he's slithery and snake-like got another man, blind man. He's at the back of the elephant, and he's holding on to one of the back legs. So he's probably the least intelligent of them. No, he's, he's holding on to the back, and he says, this thing feels like a tree trunk. Third man, standing to the side of the elephant, and he's feeling the elephant. He says, this thing's like a wall. Now, here's the point of the parable. They were all right, and they were all wrong. And usually the parable, its application goes like this. Christians have part of the truth. Buddhists have another part of the truth. And Muslims or whomever have... And how many blind men you want to put in the room, that's how many people have spiritual truth. Now, you'll hear this parable and you say, oh, that, that maybe that makes a little bit of sense. But the parable has a fatal flaw. You know what the fatal flaw is? The narrator knew the whole story. In other words, even to give a parable that's supposed to illustrate there's no such thing as absolute truth, for the parable itself to make any sense, somebody has to know what? The absolute truth. The moment you claim that ultimate truth is unknowable, you claim the knowledge you just said cannot be known. Right? You say, no one can know absolute truth. What have you just said? A statement that you're suggesting is what? Absolutely true. Luke says, skeptics, come on board. I've investigated it. I've talked to it. I've talked to the eyewitnesses. Theophilus, you live in the Roman pagan empire. You've advanced up the ladder. You know there's competing beliefs all around you. But I'm telling you this, Theophilus, I've written it down so that, read the word, you may have certainty. Now, that's not where our culture is right now. If a professor will stand before his freshman philosophy class and make a statement like, there is no such thing as absolute truth, and that's absolutely true, he's called enlightened. If a pastor stands behind a pulpit and says, there is such a thing as absolute truth, and his name is Jesus, he's labeled arrogant. Well, Luke welcomes all the skeptics, says, come near, so that, again, the whole point of the orderly account is for certainty. So, yes, ask questions but to follow the evidence we live in a culture where everybody likes to ask the questions they just don't always like the answers that they may receive and so that's what luke is saying so let's begin this orderly account in luke chapter 1 verse 5 for just a few moments this morning i want to talk to you about a king i want to talk to you about a priest an angel and a son begins in verse number five In the days of Herod, 
king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in in years. Let's stop there for just a moment and first of all talk about the king. He just gets a brief reference here. It says, in the days of Herod. So Luke starts in a specific moment of time, and it's when Herod was the king. The Bible events take place in the real world. They're real places, real people, real history, real events. In this case, we're starting in what's called the days of of Herod. Herod was king of Judea from about 37 B.C. until 4 B.C. Let me give you just a few bits of information about Herod. First of all, he was a capable king. In this sense, he carried on major building projects. Now, in those days, to have power, uh, you had to be sort of cutthroat. And if you want to read somebody who's cutthroat, that's Herod. I mean, the way that he gained power and the way that he held on to power. The Roman Empire let you be in charge for, for uh, as long as you met one requirement, and that is that you kept stability and kept the peace. Which, by the way, gives you a lot of insight and information into the latter parts of the gospel when Pilate's faced with a situation that's going to cause a lot of dis, dis, uh, disgruntledness with Jesus. And that's one of the reasons he says, if I'm going to keep my job as Pilate, as the, as the man in charge around here, I've got to squash this before it gets out of hand. And that's where Jesus is crucified. But for, but for now, let's keep our focus on Herod. He's capable in this sense. He's building projects, and in fact, the major building project that he's overseen is the rebuilding of the temple. Herod is an, uh, 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 not Jewish, but he's ruling over the Jewish people. And so one of the things that he seeks to accomplish is the rebuilding of the temple, sort of in a way to curry favor with them. So when he's capable, number two, I want you to know that he's crafty. Jesus refers to his son as that fox, Herod, like father, like son. He's a master cover-up artist, and he played the political game with greater skill than anybody. He's capable, he's crafty, and you also should know that he's cruel. He murdered one of his 12 wives, Mary Ann. He murdered his mother-in-law, murdered three of his 12 sons. You cannot think of Herod without thinking of his cruelty. He's full of deception and destruction. In fact, they had a saying in that day about Herod, it's safer to be Herod's pig than it is to be Herod's son. That's what they said about him. And probably the most famous story of Herod in the Bible is a story of great cruelty when he murders the boys of Bethlehem. So if you're living in that day and here you've got this corrupt, crafty, cruel king, you might be tempted to look around and say, is God doing anything? God is doing something. He just happens to be doing it in a place that we often wouldn't look. Let me say something before we move on from Herod. When God chooses to do a great work during this time, He does not move through the channels of the government. Let me say it again. When God chooses to do a great work during this time, He does not move through the channels of government. Yes, Herod is the king, but when God chooses to do something, he doesn't go through Herod. They just mention him, and then they move along. Look what it says. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. So let's talk about the the priest. 
We do not know much else about him other than what we're given here. He comes from the hill country, means he's not from the large city. He doesn't oversee a large parish. He's not seemingly influential. He's not seemingly powerful. He's not seemingly in charge. But when God chooses, say, it's time to do something, he bypasses over Herod and goes to the humble, righteous man. And this has tremendous implications for us in the room. For if God's going to do a great thing in Rocky Mountain, you know who it probably will start with? It's probably going to start with somebody who doesn't get a lot of headlines and they haven't written a lot of books about him or her. It's going to start with somebody like Zechariah, who's humble. And here's the description of him. He's righteous before God, walking blamelessly. There are 24 divisions of the priesthood. Just hang with me real fast. And each division of the priesthood is further divided. Now, this is important, just real quick. When I was coming along, when I was growing up as a little boy, I had a dream that went like this. Bottom of the ninth, game seven of the World Series, down by three, bases loaded, three-two count, pitch comes, and what do you do? Of course, you smack the home run, win the game, you're the hero. That's, you know, maybe, maybe your dream's a little bit different. Zacharias from the priestly family. They don't have baseball back then, of course. His dream is maybe, maybe, maybe one day he'll be able to grow up and burn the incense in the temple. You say, that seems so strange. It's what he dreamed about. It's what he hoped for. It's what he longed for. 24,000 priests, excuse me, 18,000 priests, 24 divisions. Your division went to Jerusalem twice a year for two different weeks. So when your division, your group is in Jerusalem, they cast lots to to, to see which priest gets to go into the temple to burn incense. So why are you saying all this? The odds, the likelihood of you being able to go into the holy place, the temple, and burn incense were very, very, very minuscule. So read with me what happens. The Bible says... I'm not going to bother picking that up. We were done with it anyway. (laughs) Verse 8. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, okay, so just two weeks out of the year, they're in Jerusalem. According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now don't just move past that. That's what he's saying is this is the big moment. This is the bottom of the ninth. He finally gets to go in. This This is the highlight of his life. It's what he's waited for and dreamed for. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of, of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Now, he'd always wanted to be there. This just doesn't happen to be what he thought would happen once he did get there couple of things he's married to elizabeth she's also from a priestly line she's the daughter of aaron and so they've grown up they love god they trust god they believe god but they do have kind of a significant overriding uh issue that they face for a long time if you've read it in the scripture and that is they never had a child never had a never never had a child of their own the bible says elizabeth was was barren and now and 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 now look at the end of verse seven and both were what advanced in years so they've come to a conclusion for the most part that their opportunity to have a child is uh, passed them by. 
But then he gets this opportunity to go in. And, and here's, here's what would often happen is a priest who finally gets the opportunity to go in and burn incense at the temple, he'd pray for the nation. Yes, pray for the people. Absolutely. And then the other custom was they did get to pray one thing for themselves. Now the question is, what do you think Zechariah is in the temple praying for? Two things, his people and then himself and God. And the way only God can do it is going to open, excuse me, uh, answer both prayers at, at once. Here's what he says. So we talked about a king, talked about a priest. Number three, let's talk about the, the angel. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. We, we're not told a lot. The Bible's fairly guarded about how it describes the appearance of angels. So most books, if you go get a book on angels, the author has a closed Bible, oftentimes in an active imagination. But what we do see over and over again is when people encounter angels, it scares them to death. And I don't know if it's so much the appearance that scares them as it is a glimpse of holiness that scares them. Remember Isaiah? As soon as the Lord Himself came into the temple, Isaiah said, Woe is me. I'm destroyed, he's saying. I'm a man of unclean lips. So, so anytime something from heaven comes to earth, the people of earth are immediately stricken by how holy the people there are and how unholy the people here are. That's what's happened to Zechariah. He's, he's terrified. And verse 12 says he's got the standard response. Fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Angels would only say that to a righteous man, by the way. If you're not righteous, you've got every reason to be afraid. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. What's he been praying? Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call him John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. Could anything be told to a righteous, God-fearing parent? Anything that would bring more joy than that their child will be great before the Lord. So let me uh, briefly talk to you, number four, about the son. And that's John. It says he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine, drink wine or strong drink, that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He's going to be great in the sight of the Lord, he says. In fact, Jesus says this, doesn't he? Any man born of woman, there's none greater than John. So if we just take a quick time out and ask, what made John so great? And I think it's this. It's John who says, he must increase... I must decrease. It's John who says, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals on his feet. It's John who says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's John who, in humility, in emptiness, never talks about himself. John, are you the one to come? No, I'm not. John, are you Elijah? No, I'm not. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He's everything. I'm nothing. And what you want to see here is he proclaims the gospel. And I want you to know what the Bible says. When people believe the gospel, their lives 
are changed. And I just want you to see briefly here from these verses exactly what the ministry of John accomplishes. And by the way, Jesus gave his official stamp of approval on the ministry of John. So what does Jesus say is an effective ministry? Here's what he says. He will turn many of the hearts, many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. They're in their hearts. Their hearts. They're going to turn to God. And here's how the, the ramifications of their hearts being turned to God. Look what he says to turn the hearts of fathers to the children. So I think it's safe to make this conclusion. The first place the change of the gospel shows up is in, is in the home. Now this is a direct reference back to the concluding prophecy of the Old Testament when he said as much when he comes he's going to turn the... But notice he says the, the hearts of the fathers to their children... So one, the changed life shows up in the home. And two, it says, in the disobedience to the wisdom of the just. In other words, those who've not walked with God, when they have their hearts turned to Kim, they want to walk in the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, it's important to note, gospel belief leads to life change. In verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man. And my wife is advanced in years. Sometimes when you get to be an old man, all you think is, well, I'm an old man. I hurt all the time. I ache all the time. My day's come and gone. Now, isn't this interesting? He's He's in the temple, burning incense and praying, and then God answers his prayer, and he still doesn't quite believe. He says, is this really going to happen? I'm an old man. I love Gabriel's response. And the angel answered him, well, I'm Gabriel. He said, well, I'm an old man. Well, I'm Gabriel. I'm an old man. I'm an angel, which has the trump card. I'm Gabriel. And just so you know, Zechariah, I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. Whether you believe it or not, it's going to happen. And that's still true, by the way. It doesn't matter if we believe what God has said. That has no bearing on if it will actually happen. God said it'll happen. It'll happen. You can go on believing it won't happen until it happens. And then it'll still happen. The people were waiting for Zechariah. Now here, this is great. This is a great little scene here. Uh, when, uh, when, the, when the priest, just hang with me. When the priest went in, the people would all pray. And then the priest would come out and he'd give sort of a sermon. And again, this was the highlight of his life. To go in and burn and then to come out and to preach the sermon. So everybody's there praying. And, and then they've been praying a little while longer. And then it starts to get a little awkward and uncomfortable. And they're like, is he really going to come out? And then probably somebody says, I mean, he's an old man. Is he, has he died in there? What's the protocol here? Does, who, who goes in? We're, we're still waiting, still waiting. So they're still waiting. And, um, <laughs> and so then he comes out and, and the scene is they're all waiting for him to speak. Here's the problem. He can't speak. We learn from chapter two. He's not only unable to speak, he's also unable to hear. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. I guess this is the very first time charades is played in the Bible. I think that's the only way that this, he, he's got to start motioning, because it says he kept making signs to them and remained mute. 
And when his time of service ended, he went home. So he's been in Jerusalem serving for the week. His wife knows nothing about this. She's not in Jerusalem. She's still back at home. There's no email. There's no phone call. Even if there was a phone call, she'd think it's a prank call. Nobody's, nobody's on the other end. right? So, so that's not going to do any good. So he goes home. And there are just some things in the Bible you just wish you could be there to see. Deaf, mute, Zacharias, advanced in years, is going to go home. So he went to his house. And how in the world he explains this to Elizabeth, I have no idea. It had to be quite a scene, right? Zachariah trying to explain this to Elizabeth. She's going to be pregnant. Child's going to be great before the Lord. Anyway, we won't stay there. This must have been interesting, right? After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. There is no wound that the righteous have that will not be totally healed. It's true for Elizabeth. It's true for us, whether in this life or the life to come. Can you imagine as time goes by how she told him she was expecting? How does that go? I guess they're back to charades again. And all the way through this, God's preparing for the arrival of Jesus. In conclusion, can I give you six observations and applications from this? Remember, we're studying an orderly account to have certainty about who Jesus is. Let me give you six things before we conclude. Number one, diligent study of the facts about Jesus sharpen our faith. That's what Luke says. I've investigated it. I've looked into it. I've talked to the eyewitnesses. I've been with Paul. We've seen God do great things. I've read all the books. I've talked to the eyewitnesses. And now I'm ready to give you an orderly account so that, Theophilus, you may have certainty. Don't be afraid to investigate. The Christian faith is not about putting your head in the sand and pretending. And pretending. No, if you'll follow the truth, the truth will lead you to Jesus. Investigate. Search the Scriptures. Know Him. Understand Him. God, I believe, welcomes the honest skeptic. Both of those words are important. To look at the evidence. That's what Luke says. Hey, if you're going to be honest, if you're going to follow, I welcome you, Theophilus. Number two, we have a wonderful example of a uh, godly marriage here from Zechariah and Elizabeth. How sad it's sometimes to see a couple who are married who don't care for one another's souls. No experience can take the place of the gap when Christ is not the center of the marriage. In Christ, couples experience a peculiar joy because the couple is one in their joy and one in their expectation. And no matter what comes, sickness as the years goes by, etc., they become closer. Number three, we see the activity of the people who are confronted with the duty of prayer. I just wanted to highlight this real quick. We see two, two times, one when Zechariah goes into the temple and the second when they come out, that the people are active in prayer. It's not enough for them to go to the place of worship and not worship. 
When they get there, they're praying. When Zechariah's in there, they're praying, they're seeking God. And when he comes out, they're, they're praying. And I encourage this for us as a congregation. When you come to worship, come prayerfully, come with expectation, but come to participate and not to spectate. Number, number, uh, number four, repentance has effects. John the Baptist will preach to those primarily who are familiar with the Old Testament scripture, but they've not been converted. Conversion has effects. Fathers, hearts of children, disobedient become obedient, and they're prepared for, make straight way for the Lord. Number five, there's a clear warning about an unbelieving heart. The scripture, particularly in the Gospels, the physical metaphors for spiritual truth, Zacharias does not believe, so Zacharias will not speak. Quick question, if this upcoming week you were unable to speak, would the gospel witness in Rocky Mount be diminished? What he's saying is, you don't speak up because you don't believe. Zechariah, you're silent because you didn't believe the message. And the same is true for us. The primary reason we don't share the gospel is we don't really believe it. If we believe it, we will share it. Number six, God prefers the humble to the powerful. In the days of powerful Herod, there was a humble Zechariah. And I just want to offer this encouragement to you. God will work in the same way during these days. Well, that's our first message from the Gospel of Luke. We'll pick up verse 26. Gabriel uh, is pretty busy during these days. He's going to go talk to another woman about another son who's going to be born. So we'll pick up there next week. Let's stand together and, and pray together. Hopefully, prayerfully, something that we've said or observed or applications we've made were important and appropriate for your life. And so we're going to pray and then respond during a time of invitation. And I want to just remind you, the invitation is a time for us to be active and not passive as the Lord would lead you to pray, or the Lord would lead you to sing, the Lord would in humility, you'd come here to pray, or if you've got a burden on your heart that you want to share with me, we'd be glad to do all those things during a time of active participation. So Father, we look to the Lord Jesus. We thank you that there can be certainty about the things we have been taught. They're based in fact. They're based in real historical events about things that the real God has really done in the real Jesus. Father, I pray you'd use this time of invitation to remind us it's through the humble, through the meek, through those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, through a, if ordinary is the right word, an ordinary couple with extraordinary faith like Zechariah and Elizabeth. That you ended the silence of 400 plus years from the conclusion of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New. So Father, we look to you in humility to do great things. But first of all, in humility, we say, thank you for what you've already done. Lead us during our time of response, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.